Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. so glad you're participating in this digital liturgy. This isn't church, but it looks like this is going to be the new normal for at least a couple more months. So we're going to make the best of it and trust that Jesus is Lord and that he wants to use this time to grow us up in him. Today, as we continue our series in Colossians, I have to be honest, the passage that we find ourselves in today uh, is probably not the passage I would have chosen. Um, a conversation about marriage and slavery seems like a really weird and complicated conversation to have in the midst of what's now being called the greatest global crisis since World War II. So to be honest, I thought pretty hard about just skipping this passage altogether and doing something else. But earlier this week, it struck me. One of the most significant impacts of the coronavirus pandemic at the moment is that the world is shutting down. And people everywhere, including us here in Central Oregon, are being forced to stay home. Schools are closed, restaurants are closed, many of us are either working from home or not working at all, which means most of us are most likely finding ourselves spending much more time with our families than we ever have before. In some ways, this global crisis has made the world very small for many of us. So maybe this is actually the perfect opportunity to invest into our closest relationships. So for example, for those of you who are married, what if this lockdown was an opportunity to reconnect and learn how to really love each other well? Uh, for those of us who have kids at home, I know you're already feeling it, but what if the world's longest spring break was actually a chance to give your kids the best of yourself rather than the leftovers? Uh, for those of you with slaves, Whoops. Yeah, that's where this passage gets pretty confusing. Uh, Christians have been confused by these verses for centuries, and we know that tragically these verses have been misinterpreted and misappropriated to justify all kinds of horrible treatments toward humans made in the image of God. I wish I had more time to give this topic, but for now I've just got a few thoughts that I want to share with you towards the end of today's message. So, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. These are the three sets of relationships that made up the typical household in the ancient Near East. And what Paul's doing in today's passage is that he's helping his readers begin to flesh out some of the very practical implications of the gospel message that they've received. He's been talking about this good news that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save us, we've been given this new identity and invited into this new reality of life in the kingdom of God. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been adopted by the Father, united to Christ, filled with the Spirit, and now we're included in the very life of God. That's the good news. And now the question is, what does it look like when this gospel begins to transform our closest relationships? Or in other words, how does our union with Jesus shape our relationships within our family? I love Dallas Willard's description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He says, as a disciple of Jesus, I am with him 
learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. That means how to live within the range of God's effective will, his life flowing through mine. Another way of putting this is to say that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. Isn't that great? So what might it look like if Jesus were to live your life? If he had your home, your spouse, your kids, your job? That's really the question Paul's inviting his readers to ask with this passage. So, first up is marriage. I fell in love with Jennifer Kirkbride 16 years ago. We had known each other since high school, but when I was 23, she was 21, we had already dated all of each other's friends. We finally ended up together, and I decided this was the girl for me, and I was going to propose to her on Valentine's Day 2003. Uh, at the time, I was the pastor of a pretty happening small-town youth ministry, and the local Christian radio station, which was called K-Happy, would play short clips from my sermons throughout the day. So I decided to go into the studio to record my proposal to Jen and then have them play it on the air at just the right moment. So the plan is, was that I was gonna pick her up from her parents' house after work, we'd drive about an hour to the coast, and there was this lookout point in Newport where we could park the car, watch the sunset, while my proposal came on the radio. Well, Jen got home from work late, she wasn't ready to go when I got there, and we ended up leaving Corvallis about half an hour late. So we're driving to the beach, and I'm flooring it, blasting K-Happy. And she's like, hey, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, I just really want to get there. <laughs> so I'm watching the clock, and I realize we're not going to make it. And uh, the radio spot's coming on any second. So I pull off uh, Highway 20, in Toledo, Oregon, into the Dairy Queen parking lot. And that's when my proposal comes on the air. Do you guys want to hear it? I thought you did. I'm going to show you a few pictures, too. Here you go. This is a Vertical 60, a ministry of Philomath Christian Fellowship. Here's youth pastor Pete Kelly. The Bible tells us that God is love, and love comes from God. As we celebrate Valentine's Day this year, I'm feeling that to be especially true in my life. See, God has blessed me with the love of the most wonderful woman in the world, and I want to take this moment right now to tell her just how much she means to me. Jen, no other person has brought as much beauty and passion and joy to my life as you have. Words can't even describe the deep love that I have for you in my heart. You're the perfect answer to millions of prayers, and you're everything that I ever dreamed of. Jen, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, and there would be no greater honor than to have you as my wife. I love you, baby. Will you marry me? <laughs> so there you have it. Obviously, she said yes. We got married eight months later, and if you ever drive by the Dairy Queen in Toledo, you can think of us. So, uh, over the last 15 years, our marriage, just like every marriage, has been a journey. Ups and downs, good days, rough days, times when it's easy to love each other, times when it's hard. We all want to have a good marriage. But can I tell you something? The Bible doesn't actually say much about what kind of marriage we're supposed to have. But it does tell us what kinds of husbands and wives we're supposed to be. Or in other words, 
The Bible doesn't tell us how to have a good marriage, but it does tell us how to be good wives or good husbands. And real quickly, let me tell you why I think that's good news. Because you could be the perfect husband or the perfect wife, and it wouldn't guarantee a perfect marriage, would it? In its very nature, marriage involves more than one person. As much as we'd like to, we just can't control other people. And God doesn't ask us to. He asks us to be faithful to him. And that means that in something like our marriage, we aren't guaranteed that it's going to go well, or it's going to be easy, or that our love is going to be reciprocated. But it does mean that marriage is a perfect opportunity for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus and to learn how to love like God loves. So let's dive in. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to walk through these six sections together. First up is wives. Verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So right off the bat, we have to admit that the word submit is problematic for many of us. And it conjures up images of women being mistreated, dehumanized, even abused by their husbands, and like just going along with it, like that's the right thing to do. Let me be clear, that is not what Paul is talking about. That is not what it means for a wife to submit to her husband. So what does it mean? Think about some of the different meanings of the word submit. One way to submit is to obey, to surrender, to defer. But we also use that word in a different way. When you're applying for a job and you fill out an application, what do you do? You submit it to the employer. When your car gets damaged, you get on the phone and you call your insurance company and what do you do? You submit a claim. Or if you want to write a book, um, you write a manuscript, and what do you do? You submit it to a publisher. If you're a Christ-following Christian woman, and you want to honor Jesus in your marriage, what do you do? You submit yourself to him. You offer yourself to him. You share your life with him. Rather than withholding your love from him, you give yourself to him in love. That's why I think that central to the biblical idea of submission is the idea of trust. In order to offer yourself to someone, then you need to be willing to trust them with yourself. And here's what I like about that. Someone can make you obey them but they can't make you trust them. The act of trust implies human agency. It's a choice that we get to make. And so Paul's encouraging wives to offer themselves to their husbands in love, choosing to trust them. Not primarily with the goal of being a good wife or even having a good marriage, but as an expression of your love and devotion to the true bridegroom who is Christ himself. So ladies, during these crazy times, what might it look like for you to submit, to give yourself to your husband in ways that are honoring to Christ? Next, 
Paul moves on to husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In the ancient Greek and Jewish context that Paul is writing into, to say that a husband's primary role in his marriage was to love his wife would be a very unusual idea. A husband was supposed to manage, lead, rule, control his wife and his family. But Paul says that for men whose first allegiance is to Jesus, there's a new way of being a husband. Rather than being harsh and domineering like the world, the Christian husband loves his wife with the love of God. So, of course, we use the word love in a million different ways in our world. I love Jen, and I also love El Sancho's. Do they really mean the same thing? What does it actually mean for a husband to love his wife like Christ loves the church? C.S. Lewis once said that love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved one's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Or think about the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. To love is to give. To love someone is to make a choice to continually lay down your life for them. It's to give yourself to them. It's to see their needs and to meet them just as naturally and urgently as you meet your own. To love is to give even when you apparently have nothing to gain from it. So men, my charge to you is to think about how you can love and honor your wife well during this lockdown. How can you serve her while you're all stuck at home? What extra responsibilities can you take on? What can you do to help preserve her sanity? As Paul said in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, he who loves his wife loves himself. That means it's going to go better for everyone if you learn to love her well. And we, of course, know that we have the ultimate model for this in Jesus himself, who loves his bride, the church by laying down his life for her. And just like Jesus stewarded his strength, power, and privilege, we have that same calling and opportunity as men to lift up, celebrate, and empower our wives in every way possible. Next, we're gonna talk about children. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So just like in the English language, the Greek word for children used here can refer to people of any age. So this verse applies to both kids and adults, basically everybody who has a mom and dad, which is all of us in one way or another. But for today, I wanna to take a second and talk to our Antioch kids. To all the kids who are watching, I love you guys, and I am so glad that you're part of Antioch. And I miss seeing all of you on Sundays, giving you high fives on your way to your classes. But guess what? Just like I'm the pastor of Antioch, your parents are kind of like the pastors of your family. You probably don't call them pastor mom and pastor dad. That would actually be pretty weird. But I know that they want for you the same things that I want for our church family. They want you to have a really happy life. They want you to learn what matters the most. And they want you to become the exact person that God made you to be. So that's why your parents have some rules and expectations for you. 
That's why there's some things that you're not allowed to do. And there's other things that you have to do even when you don't want to do them. It's because your parents love you so much and they really do want what's best for you. This verse says that when you obey your parents, not only is it best for you, but it also makes God really happy. Isn't that cool to think about? Even if you feel small and ignored sometimes, you're big and important to God. You always make him smile. So kids, you're going to be home from school for a little while, and things might already be getting a little crazy around the house. I want you to think about a way that you can make God happy by listening to your parents and obeying them. It's best for you, and it's best for everyone. Next, Paul has something to say to parents. Verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. He uses the word fathers, but really this applies to mothers too. So parents, let me ask you a question. Why did you have kids in the first place? Was it because you needed more workers for your farm? or because you needed more soldiers to defend your village, or maybe it was because you were concerned that if we don't multiply, there won't be enough humans in the world and our species will die out. Obviously, at different moments in history, these have been very real concerns, but for us here today, unless we're talking about a surprise pregnancy or a situation where you have to take responsibility for someone else's kids, the desire to have kids comes from somewhere else. We have kids because there's something deep within us that rejoices in bringing new life into the world. Our kids are like the overflow of our deepest heart, our way of producing the truest expression of ourselves into the world. And this is why it's so devastating when those who want to have children aren't able to. It's like they feel like it's something they were made for. So here's another question. Why did God make humans in the first place? Sometimes we hear people say things like it was because he needed someone to love him or to worship him or to glorify him. But God is love. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally loving one another. He has all the love in the world. So why did he make us? He made us to share his life and love with us. So he could delight in us and enjoy us. Honestly, I don't give much parenting advice. Our kids are still young and we'll see how it's going. But if this is true, that God created us so that he could delight in us and enjoy us, then I would argue that our first job as parents isn't to raise our kids, it's to enjoy them, to delight in them. Paul says, parents, don't embitter your kids. Rather, enjoy them, even when they're not that enjoyable. I'd say try to find at least one thing you can enjoy about each of your kids every day. They're watching you. They know whether you're enjoying them or just tolerating them. So make the choice to enjoy them. Uh, as you've heard me say, whenever we do a child dedication at Antioch, parents 
don't make it your goal to have godly kids. That's a great way to embitter them. Instead, make it your goal that your kids would have godly parents. I know that these are long, cramped up days at home together, but think of it as an opportunity to spend some real time with the people you love most, to make some new memories together, and who knows, we may even look back on this whole crisis with a sense of gratitude for the way God used it to teach us how to love each other better. Now, the final part of this passage deals with slaves and masters. Verse 22 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And next, to masters, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Um, the fact that Paul just so casually includes slaves in this series of household relationships of course sounds crazy and rather offensive to us as modern readers, um, and it should. But for Paul's original readers, slaves were a standard part of their households, serving the family in a variety of ways. Now, like I said at the beginning, we don't have time to cover all the questions that these verses raise, but I do want to help us understand a few things. In the world the Colossians were living in, there was a form of human slavery that was very, very common. In fact, no one could have imagined a world without slavery. See, back then, slaves did all the work that we use electricity, gas, engines, machines, computers, and robots to do today. It's simply the way the world was. And no one had any reason to believe that the slavery system was going to change anytime soon. So instead of confronting the system like we wish he would have, instead, Paul gives some wisdom and encouragement to those who are caught up in the system. Uh, like I said at the beginning, these verses have been used in the past and even in some places today to justify various forms of slavery and abuse. This is a tragedy, and especially if it's being done in the name of Jesus. That is not the heart of God. That is not the message of the Bible. But just because these verses have been misused in the past doesn't mean that we exclude them from our Christian consciousness and practice today. So one of the ways we can do that is to ask which parts of the master-slave relationship of their day would apply to the boss-worker relationship of our day. Um, employees. What does it look like for you to honor Christ through your work, particularly during this strange time. Everything's different at the moment, and that likely means that your employer's eye isn't on, on you as much as usual. But Paul would remind you 
that ultimately it's not your boss or your company that you work for. It's the Lord Christ who you serve. He's the one you're working for with your time, your talents, your gifts and abilities. And employers, bosses, supervisors, managers, how can you provide your employees with what is right and fair? Especially when things are shut down. Your employees should be glad that during these, ha these hard times, they have a boss who follows Jesus. These aren't easy questions to answer, but they are the questions we should be asking. I know that was a lot, but I really do want to encourage all of us to view this disruption in our normal lives as an opportunity to learn how to love those closest to us. After all, the gospel story is really the story of a family, a father and a son whose love for one another changed the world forever. And may it change us too. Antioch, love you guys. Go in peace.